So therefore, be proud to be a decent American rather than be just a wanker whipping up fear. Because you're supposed to tackle people, you're supposed to hit people at pace and hit them hard as part of the game. It's not chess we're playing. I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. The double champ does what the f he wants. Hello everybody and welcome along to chapter 86 of What's the Story podcast. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Erriga. Oh yeah. You're looking spiffing tonight, Graham. Thanks man. I feel very tired. Ah, you don't look tired. You look like you're the, you're the ball of energy compressed into a slingshot of momentum. Bulls have a lot of outs on the fixtures coming up so I'm exhausted. Ballybrack Bulls represent. You know it. Mm. I don't know why I don't know. Good roll. Think. Bulls don't make that noise. Moo. We've just lost about 15 listeners in the opening 44 seconds. Yeah, this is chapter 86, and we're coming to you from Fitzpatrick Castle Hotel in the heart of the metropolis. That is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Colony, South County Dublin. Greatest place on earth. It's a bit of a stretch in the evening. It's getting there. A bit, it's getting there. It's getting there, man. It's the, the difference, though. It's the difference between a smile and a frown. The mornings are getting a little bit brighter, a little bit earlier, too. They are. It's not pitch black when I go to work. Yeah, it's I go to work at seven, and it uh, doesn't be pitch black at all. And then yeah. in the evenings, it's getting to about, I think it's getting to about 20 to six. Oh, you do be, yeah. Uh, half five. Jeez, I tell you, man, that's a good stretch now. It is a good stretch, isn't it? Well, considering like a half hour, it was dark only there a couple of weeks ago. When does the clocks go forward? March, I'd say. Isn't it spring forward? Easter, is it? Ah, it'd be before Easter, wouldn't it? Well, Easter's in March this year, I believe. Is it? No, it's April. Is it? Definitely April. Oh, it's April 16th. Something like that, because... It is. It's, it's Pajo's little lad, Senan's birthday. There's a... He said to me, it's my birthday on Easter Sunday this year, Grandma, so I'll get two presents. <laughs> for my birthday and for Easter. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, he's only um, six or seven. Yeah, the um, I can't remember what I was going to say now. Anyway, Sorry, man. Oh, you said you were saying spring forward or? So, yeah, that well, no, it doesn't matter. Anyway, FitzpatrickCastle.com. Uh, Check it out. Great people. So, uh, people who pay attention to our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WTS pod Ireland, will have noticed that we've done a little live video to make a guest announcement for David Moore, who's going to be joining us shortly, of Astronomy Ireland fame. And uh, we also announced that we're going to be doing a live show in aid of suicide or survive and that's to celebrate the fact that we're turning 100 you we're hitting the century um, so just think question of sport meets never mind the buzzcocks that's what we're aiming for in the live show meets so, just the general meets us ridiculousness that you and I bring to things that like this tangent and we're hoping for our guests to make it a bit more ridiculous and funny and entertaining yeah, they will, they will. Um, we've got six of them we've a special kind of I suppose we've a special Host special MC, special MC of the show, special MC. He's a great friend of ours, so um, um that remain quiet for the next couple of weeks. Um, but, it will. But who's we? See, we didn't do right. We well, Caroline, we announced when Caroline was on because yeah. that's when we gave the first hint of a live show, right? Yeah. So tonight, though, we'll announce the actual today, even whatever, we'll announce the first actual guest. Right. Drum roll. <laughs> Friend of the show. Mister. 
Al Foran. So Al is going to be joining. He's going to be on one of the teams. Um, and the, the beauty of having Al there is he brings about 74 people. <laughs> yeah. So um, we can also claim De Niro, McGregor, Pacino, all his great Alex Ferguson, Wayne Rooney. Wayne Rooney, all his greats. Louis van Gaal. Yeah, it's Louis deadly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'll be 10 euro. Yeah, tenner. So tenor. outstanding value, lads. Yeah, it's right. So look, we want to pack the room out, lads, because it's all for a good cause. It's for suicide or survive. Exactly. It's for their local workshops that they do in the community. You you would have heard Caroline McGuigan talk about how important those local community workshops uh, are, and yeah. they a lot of the time they take place in school column kills in um, Ballybrack yeah. around August September. So they, they they cost a bit of money to run. So yeah. that's what all every penny is going towards local mental health back into the community so raise our we want to raise as much as we can for them yeah. and also we would be expecting if you wouldn't mind a lot of shares and retweets and whatever and bring a friend them out. We yeah, bring, look, bring the, a friend yeah look the best thing you can euro. do we'll have a bit of crack do. best thing you can do is just bring another body with you yeah look Big at the time. end of the day lads everybody knows somebody who's had you know issues or concerns with their mental health and it's affected people in in different ways, and it's look, it's a great little community we have, and we try to bring a little bit of the bullet, not not just nationally and internationally. Like we're talking like across the globe, like over ninety countries we've been listened to in. That's that ninety countries we've been listened to in. Does that gram- grammatically correct? That makes sense to me. You know what I mean? I, I know what you were trying yeah, to say. You know what I mean? Like I'm over not, ninety. I'm not the grammar police. Yeah, look, over ninety countries, hundreds of thousands of downloads. And we're asking you to come out one night, not to support us, but to support Suicide or Survive and local local causes that are fantastic. Mental health awareness. Um, and as always, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody, do. Thursday, May, May 18th. 18th. Yeah. Fitzpatrick's Castle Hotel, 10 euro, all in, all aboard. Let's wreck the gaff. Only joking, well, don't no, wreck the gaff. No, not wrecking the gaff. I'm only joking. This isn't. No, yeah, I just, I, mean, got, I just got. You got carried away. away. You got carried away. That's a Shamrock Rovers fan in you. Yeah. <laughs> the league starting. The league starting. I can't wait. Oh, it's still Six Nations. Come on, Ireland. Um. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, that's kind of our, our, our big news, I suppose, that we're doing a live show, um, the first one that we've done in front of a live audience. It's going to be a bit of crack, and we yeah. hope to see you Shit there. In the brick. Um, we'll announce details on how um, you can get tickets and how you can make sure that you're there and all in the coming weeks. Don't worry, lads. Twelve weeks away, you've loads of time, but you better be there and you better bring somebody. And so that's anyway, uh, how's that our week? Being grand, yeah, being yeah. grand. Like that, that, I've I've stopped watching the news and all that because it's either Donald Trump or it's Morris McCabe. Yeah, and the antics around that and what a shambles everything is in this country. But we're not a shambles. The, the, the Morris McCabe thing is an absolute utter and it's, it's a it's, shambles. Ah, look, it's an absolute shit show. What the, they've done the to that man? What they've done fold. to that man? Um, How they haven't already when yeah, we're going out look, to record this is an absolute disgrace. Yeah, Fianna anyway, Fáil are a disgrace as well. They're all brutal. They're all the same, man. All little gangsters. Um, I tell you what I have been doing though. I've been watching um, a TV. Remember? Did you ever hear the film Twelve Monkeys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They made it into a TV show. No way. Yeah, loving it. Is it on Netflix or something? Uh, I don't think so. So tell me, Twelve Monkeys is about a virus, was it? Yeah, that wiped out the world. So they and there was a few, yeah, there was a few people who were immune to it, and they live in the future, and they go back in time to try and stop the virus. Is it called Twelve Monkeys? It is called Twelve Monkeys, yeah, and it's fantastic. I'm really? loving it. Yeah, is I, Bruce in it? No, 
I uh, I started it maybe what a week and a half ago, and I've got four episodes left. There's only two seasons so far. Season three comes out in a couple of weeks. I'm um, I'm binging and blitzing a podcast. Like I would blitz a TV show. You were moment. telling me about this. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I never, I've never had that effect on a podcast other than our own. Yeah, yeah. See, like, uh, Which is that. available on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, <laughs> Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere, lads. WTS Pod. If you're not already subscribed, do it. That was a good plug. Cheers. Um, yeah, it's it's it, I'm binging it. It's podcast with um, w, uh, WWF guy. Yeah. Called Bruce Pritchard. He's basically Vince McMahon's right hand man for about twenty two years. He played the character Brother Love yeah. in the late eighties, early nineties. And he was released by the company about five or six years ago. But he's he's doing a podcast now at the moment and it's just him and his mate and they don't have guests, they just pick topics and like talk about storylines and what was the reason for that storyline? Ah, you know, right. so I've, I'm blitzing that at the moment. So as a big pro wrestling fan, yeah, you're loving that. It's I'm always interested in the back backstage. That's goings on. Life is more interesting when you peel back the curtain. Yeah, it's Tell this you. is totally this podcast is totally peel back the curtain. Yeah, I listened most recent one I listened to was about um, Sonny. Sonny, remember Sonny, the kind of first diva, so to speak, the body donnas, the body donnas. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, and it's all was topic it? about um, war. Skip. Skip and Sonny. Was there another one? Was Zip. Zip. Zip I, I was never. Bruce Pritchard's brother, Dr. Tom Pritchard. Ah, oh, yeah. see, I've heard of Tom Pritchard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were telling me, but sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. This is probably where I'm getting it from. <laughs> but no, it's 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 class. It's ca- I can't remember what it's called. Wrestling Wit. I don't know. Bruce Pritchard, I think. But if no. you, Yeah, if you look, I'm sure if you just Google Bruce Pritchard podcast. It's good. They picked, like, they were talking about the Royal Rumble of 94 and yeah. WrestleManias and... Yeah. The latest one out that I haven't listened to yet is about No Holds Barred, about the movie of right. uh, Hulk Hogan and yeah. Zeus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to love that. So if you're a wrestling fan, that's a podcast for you to go to. If you're yeah, not a wrestling fan, just stick... podcast of Blitz, like just, I would a TV show. Just stick with this podcast, though. Stick with us, though. Don't be shooting out. It's in my power rankings. It wasn't in my power podcast power rankings. What are your current power podcast power rankings? Number one is WTS Pod. Always. Number two... Um, mm. I do it weekly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. with second captains, I wouldn't. Because they've changed format a little bit. They've changed format a little yeah. bit, so I haven't uh, invested in. They're gone to a five euro a month subscription. Interesting business model. I wish them well. Yeah, absolutely. So they're putting out the six podcasts a week. I'd never, I'd never get enough time to listen to all me podcasts. No. So I haven't yet invested in that. It's only a fiver, but still. Um, they were they are number two still. Yeah, I'm really enjoying Eamon Dunphy's podcast. It's only forty five. Yeah, fifty the, the minutes. The stand, long. it's called, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, But the Damien Duffin was good. I I just the Robert Fisk one was good. There's times where I just can't. I can't take. Ah, uh, don't get me wrong. There's bits in it where he's he's getting things wrong and yeah. like. But the guests, I think, are good. Good quality. Yeah. What yeah. else? Um, stand. Off the ball, I always listen to Yeah, it. I like off the ball, yeah. Off the, you listen to off the ball all night. Like. I tend to listen to off the ball in work. We just go on to Neil's Talks website and just... Yeah. We're not encouraging people to abandon this show, lads. We're just saying, when you finish... Because we're only one episode a week. And we tend to be between an hour and two hours. So, you've got a lot of time to fill. And we'd like to guide you in the direction of something nice. What else do I listen I listen to Chris Jericho's a That's bit. That's nice. Those conspiracy guys when they're not seven hours long. The lads put out some content, though, man. It's crazy. They really yeah. and like it gets the brain going. 
Joe Rogan, of course. Joe Rogan, yeah. yeah. Started his one with Bill Burr. Love Bill Burr. Bill Burr has a new Netflix Netflix, Netflix special uh, called Walk Your Own Way or Walk Your Way Out or something like that. The um, Excuse me. Joe Rogan experience with Leah Remini was just Leah Remini, the Scientology one. Yeah. Ooh, good Lord. It's mind-blowing. It was. It was brilliant. Yeah. The Alex Jones one was a bit out there. If you're not used to Alex Jones... It's it's very difficult to listen to. I've seen to. Alex Jones a lot before. Um and there was some information where I was like, Wow The paedophile ring in Washington. Yeah. Yeah, Pizza I was like, guy. wait, what? That's insane. That's insane. But then they were like Barack Obama loves hot dogs, oh. air quotes. <laughs> air quotes on hot dogs there, lads. It's mental, isn't it? It's, t- it's he, bananas. But then he was saying stuff like uh about was he saying stuff about paedophiles kind of owning the world in a outer galaxy yeah no I, I don't it's know alex mad. alex jones just goes into this other dimension but there was that, a lot like, of people sharing it on facebook as if it was a matter of fact yeah some alex jones stuff man like i when i've heard him initially saying it i'm like that is absolute pony you need to get out and then a couple months later it's actually mainstream media and widespread and you're like wait what what yeah, yeah. i mean so, yeah. I don't, Some look, of the I, stories I he was bananas. bringing up, and then Joe would get his producer to put up the story, and yeah, I don't know why, whether that was a way of saying, "Look, he's not telling the, he's not telling lies here." But I mean, the Obama hot dogs thing. Ah, yeah. Even if yeah. it's true, who gives a shit? Exactly. I couldn't care less to be honest. It's not really a conspiracy, like. But anyway, anyway, enough from us, Graham. Tonight's guest is David Moore of Astronomy Ireland. So we're going to be talking about all things intergalactic, outer space, stars, planets, comets. Like, are we just going to get absolutely milled over by a big floating rock through space that decides today it's going to veer off course? Mill is a great word. It is, love, isn't it? Love milled. Mill out of it. Mill me grub. Um, I'm playing leopard. I did not dinner before I came up <laughs> here, man. Starving. Rookie Absolute rookie mistake. Absolutely. No better at this stage. Um, but anyway, you're going to hear from an expert and you're going to hear two baffled little minds go, wait, what? An awful lot. So, David Moore, Astronomy Ireland. Enjoy. All right, so we're joined now by Astronomy Ireland's David Moore. David, thanks very much for uh, coming out to us. My pleasure. Um, so, Graham and I know absolutely nothing. And I mean, like, zero <laughs> about kind of what happens when you look up so I suppose firstly tell us a little bit about astronomy Ireland, a little bit about yourself and then we'll maybe well astronomy Ireland is now relative to population the biggest astronomy club in the universe we could say in the earth uh, but of course we don't know of any aliens for sure yet <laughs> so we can claim the whole universe till somebody proves us wrong certainly we're doing good on this planet and we're always looking for new people to get involved and that's probably the secret to our success yeah. If you're not a member of Astronomy Ireland, you're missing out. And it's our job to try and convince you to join. So there are lots of volunteers help run the organisation. We have a magazine, events, talks. We speak in schools. We issue a lot of notices to the media to try and get them to tell the general public yeah. about what's going on in space. We, so we've had TV shows, radio shows. Um, I think I do about 500 media interviews a year I once worked out. Busy man. So that well. keeps that keeps the level of interest up. But the other thing we always tell people is that the Irish invented astronomy. Newgrange in County Meath is the oldest astronomically aligned building anywhere in the world, which means the Irish over 5,000 years ago were studying the motions of the sun, moon and uh, 
they wouldn't have known what they were then, but planets, the yeah. wandering stars. I mean, there's drawings of the moon and, and sun. They probably worshipped them as gods. And when they figured out, I think, that they could use the sunrise point to predict the seasons, they had a major discovery, a bit like perhaps when we figured out where the universe came from and the Big Bang and things like that. Only back then, it was more important to them because it was a matter of life and death. I mean, yeah. we've had civilization maybe for a few thousand years already. But people who moved this far north, crops, foods didn't grow in the winter. They did in the Middle East, Africa, where we originally came from. So that wasn't such a problem. But here in Ireland, there might not be any food just lying around on the ground in the winter. And so the first farmers had to figure out how to sow their crops in the spring, let them grow in the summer, harvest them in the autumn and survive on them during the winter. So we had to think. And that's probably why they were the first thinkers and the first people that figured out how the sun rises is important. You know the Irish weather. If you lie on, depending on when it's warm, to tell you this is the summer coming, (laughs) you can be months out. But with the sunrise point, you can practically get it accurate to the nearest day. And there's evidence that they not only knew there was 365 days in the year, but they knew it was 365 and a quarter days in the year. I mean, their brains were practically as good as ours. So they just didn't have the knowledge that we we yeah. have built up so far. So when they figured out this 365 and a quarter days, that quarter day is important because over 100 years, that adds up to 25 days, and that's a month roughly. So you don't want to be planting your crops wrong by a month. And of course, they could reset their clock every time it was clear on the shortest day of the year and, and get the, the seasons accurate that way. So they've been thinking since then. We had the biggest telescope in the world in Burn in County Offaly in 1845 for a half a century. And even today, we're, we're bu- building part of a radio telescope that spans a whole continent. And we're the, one of the important nodes of it. Curious enough, it's being built on the land out in Burr. And that's going to ha- have incredible resolving power to see out into space. So it's still yeah. happening here in Ireland. And there must be something in the genes that our astronomy club is just so big. So the message is, if you're not in Astronomy Ireland, you need to go to astronomy.ie, sign up for the magazine. It'll cost you less than a euro a month, oh, sorry, it's a euro a week. And there's Facebook, Twitter accounts, and email yeah. list you can join as well, and we'll keep you posted of any events. How did you get on, or how did you get so involved and in, not involved in Astronomy Ireland, but was it as a child that you just loved the stars and the moon and stuff like that? No, I no? wanted to blow things up. <laughs> <laughs> so I got very interested in chemistry. And I remember back then with no internet, so we we're trying to figure out what's the formula for gunpowder which I eventually found out, I think, in Encyclopedia Britannica at the time. Uh, So then you're trying to find the ingredients to make it. And uh, along the way, I wanted to get a chemistry set. And a friend of mine had one uh, he'd got as a present. So I went back to his house one lunchtime uh, from school to have a look at this chemistry set to see, you know, would I get that particular one? There was a whole range of them. And uh, in the corner, we did see the chemistry set eventually, I think. I did get a chemistry set, I remember. But I remember he had a telescope in the corner of the room. Now, these days, they're very cheap. The Chinese make actually quite good quality telescopes these days. And in real terms, a sort of percentage of income, they're about 10 times cheaper than they were back then. So, in fact, everyone should have a decent small telescope, at least. And certainly a pair of binoculars, they're ridiculously cheap these days. But back then, they were expensive. Uh, I did eventually get a small telescope. Uh, really small now it cost more back then in the 70s than you can buy a bigger one for today which gives you some idea of how cost effective they are now and i asked him with the telescope what could you see and he said uh the moon and jupiter 
Jupiter? What's that? Planet? Oh, what does it look like? A bright star. Uh, where is it? It's down the end of the garden. Well, if I come back tonight, can I have a look at it? No, it's gone. Where'd it go to? <laughs> <laughs> so you can see a young kid asking lots of questions, and he, I think he, he said, have a look at the chemistry cell. <laughs> so we did eventually, and then he told me there were books in the school library. So I got back in time just before the library closed. I got a book out at lunchtime, read that one, uh, read lots of other books, went to the local public library, read all their books, used to go into bookshops in town and buy all the latest books and then used to mail order them back then uh, because astronomy wasn't a sort of mainstream pursuit. We didn't have Discovery Channel, National Geographic and the Internet blasting out discoveries about space left, right and centre like they do today. But there was one book that particularly excited me and really, I suppose, opened my mind. And that was, it had a picture of the Earth, and next to it was the Sun. And I didn't realise how big the Sun was. I mean, it's 100 times wider than the Earth. You could squash a million Earths together to get a ball as big as the Sun. I thought, well, that's big. And didn't understand what the Sun was. On the next page, though, the Sun was a little dot, and there was this other star, much bigger than the Sun. And it, it dawned on me then, wow, if the Sun's a million times bigger than the Earth, and this thing's a million times bigger than the Sun, it's ridiculously big. But on the next page, that star was a little dot. And there was another star next to it. And there was about three or four pages of this. And at the end of it, I remember thinking, I just can't imagine how tiny the Earth is compared to this, the biggest star that's yeah. known. And it, I realised there's a lot more out in space than there is on the Earth. And they're not telling us this in school. I've got to find out more. And I'm still trying to find out more. <laughs> there's so much to learn about space. Um, astronomy, I suppose, recently has kind of... It's almost got sexy I suppose, like, you have, like, Brian Cox, who has really pushed things. I know Dara O'Brien was doing that stargazing show and that kind of thing. Mm. You guys doing the, the stuff out in Phoenix Park and your your, uh, your starbecue, which is great. Um, but, like, the, as I said, the accessibility to it now that, like, telescopes and that are a little bit cheaper. I mean, I got a telescope in Little last year, and it's great. Yeah, like it's, I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'll be honest, but it's great being able to like actually say, "Oh, look at that!" You know what I mean? So, <laughs> but I suppose with Astronomy Ireland and say like the stargazing things and that, if people go to these events, uh, like there, there's people there to say like, "Yeah, right now you're looking at Venus," or "Right now you're looking at," and kind of give them actual breakdowns of what's happening out there. Is it? Yeah, this is the great thing about the hobby. It's a club. And so there are people who, who want to share their knowledge with, with other people. So at our events, we're almost entirely run by volunteers these days. We used to have grants years ago. They all dried up. But <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the volunteers will bring their own telescopes along so they know the equipment inside out. Yeah. They know that, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, they were like the kids and the general public that come along who knew nothing about even what telescope to, to buy, let alone where to point it. And the tip, by the way, if it was with your own telescope, is to, to practice on the moon. There's so much detail to see. I mean, I've been looking at the moon for decades, and I still, every time I look at the moon through the telescope, it's fascinating. You want to study it a bit longer. There's so much detail to see. So they'll show people the view through their telescope. And being outside in the cold, looking up at, at space, is one way of doing it. But then there are the shows that Brian Cox and Dara Breen and the like do. We used to do a show on, on the Den with Ray Darcy and Dustin in the 90s, the Astronomy on the Den. Once a month, we tell the kids what to see in, in the sky. I mean, the moment we tell them to go out and look at Venus, the International Space Station, it's been flying over for two weeks. There's always something interesting to see. Jupiter's coming. There was an eclipse last week as well, etc., etc. 
And the magazine is packed with stuff to see every month that you can see with either naked eye or a pair of binoculars, let alone a small telescope. Yeah. And we've had Brian Cox in to give public lectures for us. Um, and lots of other people as well, astronauts, astronomer royals. And we always brief them, you know, even if they're a professor of some institute in Cambridge or whatever, that you're talking to the general public. People might not even have done any science subject at leaving cert, yeah. let alone university degree. And most of them are very keen to, to share their knowledge. And that's why you get people like Brian Cox, who's been in a, a rock band with a number one hit. <laughs> He's a professor of really particle physics, so he knows the fine detail of yeah. the latest theories of the universe. But he also, probably because when he meets people at dinner parties, they ask him, what do you do? And when he tells them, you end up having to explain it to somebody that has no scientific training. And that dawned on us. We ran a lot of events. In, we used to do them in the Phoenix Park. Now we have our own premises in Blanchardstown. We can do them out there. It's a bit more civilised. We have toilet facilities and electricity, which you never used to have in the Phoenix Park. And you explain something to people that you think is very simple, and you can see their eyes glaze over. They don't understand what you're talking about. So you have to back off and try and explain it a bit simpler. I mean, you've been doing that for a long time. Uh, it, it, it's fun, becomes second nature, and you start to understand the way people who haven't got a scientific training. But the important thing is they've got curiosity. And we talk a lot in schools all around the country. Ten, oh, tens of thousands of kids I've been standing in front of in the last year. And we're trying to excite them, not just about astronomy, which is a hobby, and they might get a job in that, but also about a general interest in science. I, mean, I came from an interest in chemistry. And there are fantastic jobs in this country. There weren't when I was growing up. Ireland was a poor country. And now we've got the European headquarters of all the giant technology companies from pharmaceuticals, the chemistry again, all the way up to the physics, the solid state detectors and electronics. And of course, the software people as well. So if you've got an interest in, in science, you're onto a good job, is what we tell the kids. And also, the reason, one of the reasons why space is taking over is that a lot of the big billionaires and corporations are now beginning to invest in space. I mean, Elon Musk, who said... Richard up, Branson, would he be one? Richard Branson said, yeah. Virgin Galactic. We've yeah. had his, uh, the general manager of Virgin Galactic in Ireland. At least five people have paid $200,000, I think it was, not euros, to go up into space. Bill Cullen is one of them. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. Has that happened yet? Uh, no, no, there no. keep being delays. There's been a, a death or two along the way as well. It's yeah. still a dangerous wow. area with their test pilots. Um, but they're always saying, oh, we'll be going up next year. Oh, we'll be going up next, next year. year yeah. And there's uh, three, 300, 500, something of that order. Last I heard a while ago, it was 300. It's probably going up now. People who have paid yeah. to go up. And it's expensive now. It's the price of a small house. But... As time goes on, that will come down to the cost of a world cruise. And there are yeah. thousands of people that take world cruise, and that's the business model. You know, thousands of people paying tens of thousands a year gets you up to a billion-dollar turnover. And Elon Musk, who set up PayPal, a young guy interested in space, got side-barred uh, by the Internet for a while, uh, set up PayPal, but sold it for a billion euros, like yeah. you do, in 2003. <laughs> I, he was a pretty substantial shareholder in it when he sold it. So he's got hundreds of millions of euros. You can buy any car, yacht, whatever you want. What do you do with the rest of the money? Well, what he decided to do is set up a space company, SpaceX, which now launches rockets for NASA. And NASA actually pay him several PayPals a year. So he makes far more money every year than he did setting up all of PayPal well. in, in the beginning. And he said the only reason he set up SpaceX was to build cities on Mars. 
Last yeah. I heard, he's worth about 10 billion. So when someone with that kind of track record and that wealth says that, and he's not the only one. You've probably heard a little company called Amazon.com, yeah. Yeah. set up by Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos has got a space company as well. And he wants to build habita habitats on Mars as well. And How likely are all those habitats Well, to when happen? billionaires say it, and the Boeing Air Company or another company that are doing it as well, when they say that by the end of this century, they expect there will be one million people living on Mars, it was crackpots were saying that, fair enough, or even science fiction writers or futurologists. But when it's proven track record billionaires who have the money and obviously have the skill to do things like this and don't tend to say silly things, when they say it, you tend to believe it. I'm sure he's done some good detailed back-of-the-envelope calculations. And he's built the rocket that can resupply the International Space Station. They're working on the one that can carry people up, which requires a lot more safety. Uh, once they've done that, then they can build larger versions which can go to Mars. There's a lot of problems to be solved, but te the way technology is in improving in the future, there's going to be technology to solve almost any of those problems. There are more people alive. Uh, there are, the rate of progress is accelerating. Uh, the only thing, you know, will robots take over the world before us humans actually get there? But Elon Musk in particular said that he's going to put, by the time he retires, which would be about 2040, not that far away now, uh, 80,000 people on Mars. That's what he's going to do, let alone Jeff Bezos, yeah. Boeing, and a whole bunch of other companies. And these companies all intend making money out of this. So the uh, big corporations will sit up and take note. You know, would it interest you to go to Mars? Yes, there was a Mars One project that wants to do it very soon in the 2020s, where it was a one-way ticket. And 200,000 people, I think it was, applied. And the idea is, it's not so much one way, just go there and die. It's won't go there and live for the rest of your life. So the idea is you would survive, but you would not be coming back, which reduced the cost dramatically. It comes down from, you hear all kinds of figures, from tens to hundreds of billions to go to Mars. And then you hear that the one-way trip could be as cheap as $8 billion, I think I've heard. Uh, so 10 times cheaper if you don't have to build a rocket there and come back because there's no space companies up on Mars. So yeah. building a rocket that can come all the way back is actually very difficult. I mean, we're drinking nice water here at the moment, uh, which we could probably buy in a shop for a, of the order of a euro a litre. Yeah. To get that up to the International Space Station costs between twenty and 30,000 euros. So water in space is very expensive. But when, you in, when, you have, when you're building not just one-off rockets, but thousands or millions of them, the cost drops to practically the cost of the raw materials. Yeah. And that's the whole plan, that the cost of space exploration will come down. And that's what Elon Musk and the like are doing. They're building rockets. They know then they can mass produce. They're going to get it right and then copy it. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way forward. There's only been 500-odd people in space to date so it's a very small pool of people. And to think there'll be, there's never been anybody on Mars. The kids all assume they have when you're talking in schools. They ask, have you been in space? <laughs> they, they think anyway, everybody goes to space. Uh, it's second nature to them. And they're going to be right by the time they're my age. Yeah. Well, it's insane, like. I didn't think Mars was uh, habitable. Well, you know, is Norway or Iceland uh, or certain the Antarctic, where we do have a research station, habitable? The answer is no, not for normal humans. You need some technology. Let's take the Antarctic, because that's probably the closest place to Mars that really exists. It can get down to minus 80, minus 90 Celsius there. Uh, it can get cold in that on Mars. But uh, a hot day on Mars is equal to a cold winter's day in Ireland. 
Uh, now, there's no oxygen for you to breathe, but if you have a, 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 a very thin suit, a bit of an oxygen mask, uh, you could walk around on Mars fairly well. And if you lived underground, you could, you could live there no problem at all. And in the Antarctic, they live inside an enclosure. Now, it doesn't have to be sealed uh, to protect you from the carbon dioxide atmosphere that you have on Mars, which is actually very thin. You couldn't breathe it anyway, even if it was oxygen. It's too thin. But with uh, surviving on Mars would be no difficult, more difficult than living on Antarctica or living under the sea, for instance. And there are experiments. Uh, we had an Irish guy we were writing about in the magazine the last few weeks who is part of the NASA group that are going to live underwater. Um, so if they spring a leak, it becomes serious. They have had some above-water sealed enclosures where they recycle everything, as they would have to do on Mars to see what it's like. They've gone up to 500 days, which is roughly how long a mission to Mars would last. Um, so living underwater, and you know, people don't need to live underwater on the Earth, so we haven't really developed the technology. But we know how to do it. You know, we also know how to recycle the oxygen. Uh, we know how to generate uh, electricity. We know there's water on Mars. It's just frozen below the surface. If we could melt it all and put it on the surface, we could cover the entire planet to a depth of 30 metres. So there's plenty of water on Mars. It's just frozen below the surface. So we can access that relatively easily. Uh, and oh, Jesus the, Christ. You know, the technology <laughs> to do all this would be expensive to do one off. But if you're going to sustain a million people, that's yeah. going to bring the cost down. And by the time you look centuries into the future, uh, I always think, well, look centuries back. If you go back 500 years ago, when we just had uh, uh, discovered the Americas, effectively. I mean, who would have, if you're living in a nice place like Europe with all its beautiful architecture and infrastructure and people, and you're thinking of going over to America where there's nobody, uh, maybe a few natives, but practically nobody, nobody to talk to anyway, no infrastructure, no roads, no, no nothing. Uh, why would you go there? The only thing there was was land and they could grow crops. Turns out European crops don't grow in American soil and the first pilgrims were dying like flies. They were all going to die. Fortunately, the local natives told them how to treat the soil and they survived. A little known fact. Well, we'd have the same thing here on Earth, except you'd be radioing back to the biological scientists on the Earth saying, all our crops are dying, what are we doing wrong? And they'd figure it out with the, with the science. In fact, the first missions would figure it out anyway. And we probably know enough at this stage to sort that particular problem. So Mars, you're not going to walk around on the surface in your shorts, and you're certainly not going to walk around with a big heavy jacket on. You're going to need a bit of a suit and a bit of a breathing apparatus and they're expensive at the moment but when you make them by the million they're not so Mars aside that's mental it, it is it's crazy but I suppose yeah the, the point that you made about like you know 500 years ago they thought the world was flat and <laughs> and now it's the biggest economy on the yeah. planet will it be in 500 years time probably less that Mars the United States of Mars or whatever they set up <laughs> up there <laughs> will be the biggest economy that the human race has it yeah. could be. It's actually easier to get into space from Mars because they've only got one third the gravity. So that 20,000 mm. euro bottle of water that you have on the International Space Station is not going to cost that much if it's a space station orbiting Mars or if yeah. you want to go and explore other places. And I'm going to take to get to Mars. Well, they're a cheap way. If you have infinite money, you can go there very quick. And we've sent spacecraft. They've got there in less than a year. But if, if you Less want, than a year? Yeah, if you want to go in a 
the most economical mission, mission, which means the same amount of money, you can get more stuff there. And for people, you do need a lot of stuff. They want food and water, apparently, yeah. these humans. <laughs> Robots don't need that. <laughs> and they want a rocket to bring them back as well. So they're awkward, humans are. So you'd probably have a one-year journey there. You'd spend the, a year there. Mars lines up with the Earth roughly every two, 2.1 years. Uh, so actually you can see it in the evening sky at the moment. It's near the planet Venus over in the west. But it's actually on the far side of the sun. It won't be back close to us until summer of next year. And then two and a bit years later, it'll be back close to the Earth. So you can, there's a good window for launching cheap to Mars every two years. And uh, you spend a year getting there, spend a year on Mars and a year coming back. And that all fits nicely in, into that uh, window that you have for the planets lining up so you're gonna to have to survive for a year it's not like going to the moon where they spent uh, a few hours in the first case and a, a few days in, in by the end of the last mission to the moon you're going to stay there a long period of time so you've got to recycle everything you can't bring enough food just to eat and throw things away uh, like they did on short hop missions uh, so it's it's multi-year missions and the problem is with the human body doesn't like being weightless you know, you can lose 20% of your muscle mass in a week if you don't exercise. And if you do exercise, they do two hours. We just interviewed Chris Hadfield, the singing astron astronomer who's in Dublin. Um, they do two hours of exercise every day, uh, and they still lose bone mass yeah. and muscle tissue, even with that regime. So keeping the human body uh, good enough that when you get to Mars you're not so bad because you're going to weigh a third of what you weigh on the Earth so you almost certainly won't have any problems Jesus I'll be happy <laughs> <laughs> so you you have had a year weightless in space a year third gravity on Mars and then another year weightless in space and then you're going to come back to the Earth's gravity most of the astronauts can't really stand up when they get back to the Earth after a six month tour but again right in the magazine we just been reporting on the year-long mission they've started to do on the International Space Station and the reason for that is what they learn about the human body being a yeah. year weightless in space is what they're going to use on the trips to Mars it's, it's amazing um, it's all, all the research is going on and there's literally billions being spent on this Jesus that's that's madness like so yeah. I tell the kids in school you know keep up your interest in space it's exciting and interesting yeah but there's going to be great jobs in it yeah definitely more god yeah um to kind of strip it right back then, when we look up, what are we actually seeing? What are we looking at? Mm. Well, if you go out in a nice, clear night, actually it was quite clear this evening coming yeah. in, uh, you can see uh, for the next few weeks you can see Venus blazing till about St. Patrick's Day. Then it's, it actually goes around the sun on an inside orbit, was, goes faster than us, so it's going to catch up with us and go between the sun and the Earth. And it does that at the end of March. So... If, about a couple of weeks before that, it'll be too close to the sun really to see. So it's blazing away since Christmas. It's 100 times brighter than the bright stars in the sky. So it's really obvious. And to the upper left of it is a, a dimish looking star that's actually the planet Mars. It can be about uh, 20, 30 times brighter than that when it's close. It happens to be far away. And we wouldn't normally be bothered looking at it. Only Venus is sitting right next to it. Uh, so there's two planets that you can see. If you wait till 11 o'clock tonight, another brilliant star, 10 times brighter than any of the stars in the sky, will rise over in the east. That's the planet Jupiter. And it's a fantastic sight in a telescope. Even your own little telescope, if you take it out, uh, you'll see a small disk, hopefully the cloud belts on the disk, and you'll see four moons spread out on either side. Galileo did this in 1609 when he turned the first telescope on the night sky. He noticed Jupiter had these things going around it. And that's one of the reasons he thought not everything goes around the Earth, which is what they'd all been taught up to that. So, and 
uh, obviously the, the the telescope you'll be able to see that detail but you can see them almost like this big bright star with just the naked eye oh yeah yeah the word planet means wandering star in greek so the greeks ah. they drew all the star patterns and noticed oh the plow for instance stays the same year in year out the seven stars all stay in the same shape the w of cassiopeia the three stars in orion's belt they're always there every year but there were these bright stars that moved amongst the other stars they assumed they were gods what else would be moving up there amongst the stars you know so they named them after their gods uh, we now know of course wandering star is actually a planet and we know it's much smaller than the star it's much closer and it's going around our sun so yeah you'll see jupiter and venus in particular blazing away mars is as bright as jupiter every two and a bit years saturn is about as bright as the brightest stars in the sky but it doesn't rise to about 5 a.m so yeah. wait wait six months it'll be in the evening sky so there's all those planets to see. And then there are the constellations, the star patterns. You mentioned the Plough, Orion, the W of Cassiopeia. You learn a few simple patterns like that. The Big and Dipper. Then, the Big Dipper. And you yeah. use a, a, a map then that if you follow, for instance, if the Big Dipper is, is like a handle with a, with a bowl at the end. And the two end stars, extreme end of, of the bowl, they point towards the North Star. And it's roughly the length of the Big Dipper away from those stars. And the star you'll see sitting there is the north star now you know how to navigate if you're in the northern hemisphere so you, you can use that trick to find that constellation if you go from the the plow of the big dipper to the north star and on the same distance to the other side you come to the w of cassiopeia you use little tricks like that you can sort of use stepping stones to find all the various constellations and then you begin to learn where there are little galaxies and star clusters lurking that you can see in a pair of binoculars and the best telescope to get for astronomy is a pair of binoculars. I mean, the word binocular means, it's an adjective, it's not a noun, it means binocular telescope. You can have binocular microscopes. Anything used with two eyes is a binocular something. Yes. By meaning two, ocular meaning to see. So binoculars are two, are, is short for binocular telescopes. They're small, low-power telescopes stuck side by side that are convenient, relatively cheap and easy to use. And you can see star clusters, galaxies, the odd comet, uh, coloured stars, double stars. You can actually see the moons of Jupiter if you hold them really steady. I've seen, certainly the outermost ones are easy enough, and you can see all four of them if you hold them really, really steady. Uh, uh, but you won't see detail on the planets. You'll barely see the big craters on the moon. Yeah. A, a real telescope on a proper sturdy stand comes into its own for planets. And, of course, the, the star clusters and galaxies, it can see a bit of detail in those as well. And then you get bitten by a bug called aperture fever where you've seen the view through one telescope, now you want to look through a bigger one because the image would be better and brighter. And you end up, you know, at our event now, we've one telescope worth around 10,000 euros. Wow. Uh, that's 3,000 times more powerful than your eye. Still a, t a toy telescope compared to professional telescopes. Yeah. But that's one of the biggest telescopes in Ireland. And I think it's the biggest one that's on, in public use, at least in the Republic anyway. Crazy. So people are welcome to come along look through that for free. Just yeah. sign up on the social media accounts and we'll tell you when the next one's happening we just had one last week so it'd be usually one a month we don't want to tire our volunteers out too much and if you come to the barbecue that you mentioned earlier yeah. which is in september this year the 15th or 16th saturday we're in the wicklow mountains away far enough away from dublin that you can barely see the glow and the sky is glorious you can see the milky way going down to the horizon more stars than you can almost count in a That's, night. Yeah, I wanted to say about that because, like, living in Dublin, the light pollution can, as I said, I've no idea what I'm looking at, but I, I was down in uh, Kerry before and I'd mm. never seen, like, the actual Milky Way kind of thing. And it was 
like it's mind blown this is man yeah like it just gives you a little idea just how kind of small and well, not insignificant but like it, <laughs> like it's it's mind blown genuinely like have you ever seen even a photo of it mm, yeah I've seen a photo yeah like seeing that like like literally above you yeah of, yeah and you can see detail in it, the structure where there are dark gas clouds that yeah. are masking the stars from behind it's never as good as a photograph because the camera cheats it collects yeah, light yeah. for tens or of seconds or minutes the human eye is like a video camera taking several pictures a second so we never build up enough light to see as deep as a camera uh, but the, the Milky Way, you can see it if you live in the Dublin area. You can see it from the Wicklow Mountains if you're in other parts of, of the country. Uh, just a short drive out of the town or city you're in. Yeah. And in Ireland, we're one of the lowest, if not the lowest population densities of any country. So dark skies are relatively accessible if you have a car. Yeah. Or if you live in the countryside already, you, you've got it made. The only problem we have is only one in four nights in Ireland is clear yeah. <laughs> it often makes you wonder why is there such interest in astronomy when we've got such bad skies yeah. and I th- it's only a th- casual theory I have the reason is that if you live somewhere it's clear every every night the stars are there all the time take you take them for granted yeah. but it's like when we see the sun we almost throw a party <laughs> <laughs> I think when the stars come out well the stars are out and you won't have a look yeah. and then of course it's cloudy several nights and you forget about them and you miss them and then they come back again. And maybe it's that renewal, there's some psychology in there that's making us excited. But I mean, I know we, I live in the suburbs and even when you step out into the backyard, it's a particularly clear night with very little mist that's reflecting back all the street lights. You look up, you see all the stars. You still go, wow, and you're transfixed there for a yeah. while. And you drive out to the countryside to, to get a better look and you get out of the car. Uh, you always go, wow. Yeah. You know, Would you, you often do that? Go out the back and just have a look? When there's something interesting to see, so at the moment there's a bit of a comet in the morning sky. We're not really promoting it because you need a pair of binoculars to see it. You have to be in a dark sky to see it and you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And for some reason, not a lot of people want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But I always liked comets in particular, so I've been watching the skies uh, in the morning. You develop this technique of setting the alarm, uh, looking out of the window bleary-eyed, and if it's cloudy, you just go back to sleep. You never really wake up. Uh, but if it if it's clear, you actually the sight of the clear sky wakes you up. You jump yeah. up, get dressed, gather the equipment. I like to take pictures uh, and and head out to the countryside. And I've seen quite a few comets and other interesting things doing that. that. That's something for the hardcore astronomers. There'll be comets in the evening sky later. In fact, there's a couple coming along this year that we're probably going to set up telescopes for. They're not brilliant comets. They'll be faintly visible to the naked eye, but they'll be great in a big telescope. Mm. And we had a few comet watches over the last few years in Blanchardstown. And what are comets? Comets are what people are made of, we think. Now, the real answer is they're giant, dirty snowballs. But there's too much water on the Earth. And when the Earth was formed this close to the sun, uh, it formed by smaller rocky bodies made up from the dust that was in a huge cloud of gas and dust that formed the sun and formed the plants. All the bits of dust bumped into each other and the dust lumps got bigger and bigger until it became the size of the Earth. And so the Earth has swept up all the material in its orbit. So there's nothing in space near us now because it's all stuck inside the Earth. But it would have been hot from all those impacts. The surface would have been molten. In fact, we think an object about half the size of the Earth very soon after the Earth was formed hit the Earth and the resulting explosion or splash threw off a huge ball of rock, about an 80th of the Earth's mass, into space. And that's formed the moon. Because our moon is quite big. It's a quarter of the size of the Earth. It's very unusual to have a, a moon as a decent fraction of the size of, uh, of the planet. 
So that's how we think the moon was formed. And of course, that vaporized everything on the Earth. Any water on the Earth was vaporized, would have escaped off into space. So why is 70% of the surface covered in deep oceans? And the answer we think is that comets or maybe asteroids, but other small solar system bodies from far out, bombarded the early Earth. We think we even know the reason why. And they uh, filled the oceans. And of course, the chemicals in that ocean formed more and more complicated organic molecules. And they, we think, one day eventually formed self-replicating molecules like RNA and DNA and things like that. And they evolved into the single-cell life. <laughs> and now you and I, they counted them recently, you and I are about 36 trillion cells, all working in harmony to make a human being. That is, And each one of those cells is a small packet of... A small packet of water, right? You fit a dozen of them or so across the human hair, so they're pretty small. Can't really see them in the naked eye, but you see them in, 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 in microscopes. And each one is a packet of water with a membrane around the edge to keep the water in and a bit of interesting chemistry, the DNA and all the other stuff that goes on inside a cell. Um, and that water, which is about two-thirds of the cell, we think came from comets. At least half it did. Maybe all of it. Comets My and mind is yeah, blown. So you're, I'd love telling the kids in the schools that they're made of comet juice. This is why we study comets. I mean, we just yeah. spent over a billion euros of European taxpayers' money on the Rosetta mission, which was phenomenally successful. And one of the big things was to see is the water that's on the comet the same as the stuff in the Earth's oceans. And the answer is it actually isn't. So oh. now we think maybe it's from asteroids or maybe there's different classes of comets. Because, uh, yeah, I was going to say, just like, uh, what the hell? Com- comets and asteroids are, I know they're kind of different, but people always associate them almost the same way. Like, But mm. the, the only thing I ever associate with either comets or asteroids was kind of like... Disaster. Uh, they, they, yeah, they, they hit the earth and that killed the yeah. dinosaurs and sure it could happen again tomorrow, you never know. Like, but yeah. now yeah. I'm kind of like, wait, hang on a second, right? So we got absolutely pelted out of it by comets when the earth first kind of formed a huge one hit us bit bounced off that that's the moon yeah and now all the water is because all these other comets lashed in kind of stuck to us whatever nature and evolution and whatnot comes along and does yeah. its thing and that's if that, we're here you're being, you're being to get the story. And it's a great detective story. I loved detective stories when I was growing up as well. And if you like detective stories, you love astronomy. And if you look at the moon, it's peppered with craters. Yeah. And we, 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 there are some big blo- dark blotches on it that have no craters on them. So something hit the moon so hard, the molten rock from inside oozed out, filled this giant crater. And a few other rocks came along and hit the surface and made a few craters. But the old surface of the moon is heavily cratered. And when you count all the craters as a detective, you figure out that if the Earth's about four and a half thousand million years old, about after five or six hundred million years, the whole moon got, got peppered really intensely with a lot of uh, things hitting it. And then it stopped. Well, it, it sort of slowed up to the kind of very slow rate that it is today. So there was this late heavy bombardment, it's called. And we always wonder where did that come from? And now we think we know from computer simulations of how the big planets, Jupiter and Saturn, our two biggest planets, were moving around in their orbits very early on in the solar system. And there's a giant swarm of comets out beyond the outer planets. And that would, we think, have disturbed them. And they caused all these comets to fall in and bombard the moon, which is small, and therefore its surface is an ancient record. 
Whereas on the Earth, we've got plate tectonics resurfacing the Earth every few million years. We've lost our historical record, but we've got it on the moon. It's sitting there looking at us. We look at it through a pair of binoculars and you can count the craters in a telescope and figure this out if you're a clever scientist, which is what's been done. So... You know, then you find out there's too much water on the that earth oh that could have come from them comets that explains how our oceans got filled uh, and, and then you start to understand where the whole gas cloud came from that created the earth sun and the other planets as well and why the inner planets are rocky and hard and dense the outer planets are gassy and very big and cold um, and it so, all begins to fall into place so what's in the middle of the moon because like we have obviously a core and Molten lava and blah, 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 blah. Mm. Well, when, when we went to the moon, uh, we brought back the moon rocks and the Apollo missions, and you could analyse them. It turns out they made more of the same stuff as the Earth, the Earth's crust. And, and that sort of was the clue that gave rise to the idea, oh, the moon must be made of the same stuff the Earth's made of. Yeah. And there may be a small metallic core in the moon. It would have a magnetic field or some form of magnetic influence if it did. It doesn't have a very strong magnetic field, so the, that tends to suggest... Maybe there's a metal core there. The metal would have sunk to the bottom. That's why it happened on the Earth. The, the iron and nickel is heavy yeah. and it sank to the centre on the gravity. And the rocks are lighter. So they're actually floating on top. And the crust then is giving off its heat into space, which so cooled down. So, you know, it's like the crust on a pudding or something. Uh, it's just cooled down. Uh, so that sort of explains the Earth. There's a bit of radioactivity left in the Earth some very big atoms that are still decaying radioactively. And they give a small amount of heat into the Earth. It takes billions of years for that to dissipate. That's enough to keep the Earth molten at the centre. And the Earth's core then is heated up like that. And the, and the metal moves around ever so slowly. And these moving bits of metal can generate electrical currents, which generate our magnetic field. And on Mars, which is half the size of the Earth, there's not enough radioactivity in there. The core is probably set solid and it's not liquid. And so its magnetic field is gone. And on the radiation from the sun, we channel it actually away from the Earth, and some of it comes into the north and south pole and gives us the northern and southern lights. On Mars, that doesn't happen. The radiation hits the surface, and it blasted away the oceans that Mars would have had, because it got bombarded like the Earth did too, and would have had oceans. We know from all the sediments we can see with the spacecraft we've got trundling around there today, that there was liquid water sitting on the surface of Mars probably for one billion years. And we're fairly sure life got started on the Earth's oceans in tens to maybe hundreds of millions of years. So there was enough time for life to get started on Mars. The question is, did it? Did something weird happen oh. to the Earth? And if it did, what happened when the oceans were boiled away? We've recently seen some very salty liquid water deposits oozing out of Mars. So there's liquid water under the surface, but it's not the kind of oceans we have on the Earth. So did the life die off or did it learn to evolve in that salty oceans, uh, so salty water below the surface? And maybe it's just been eking out a miserable existence, evolving slowly on Mars, where it's evolved very fast on yeah. the Earth. And that's why we want to go back there with other craft that are going to look for, for evidence of that life. We know there was the conditions for life there now. That's scientifically proven. The question is, is it all fossils now or is it still alive? What, what, it's nuts. What, what other planets are habitable? Uh, the next place to go actually tend to be the moons of the planets. And water is a very good thing to go looking for. Yeah. So they're a bit further out and a bit more exotic. Uh, you don't want to go, by the way, to Venus. Venus has got a runaway greenhouse effect. It's 500 degrees Celsius on the surface. There's battery acid in the clouds. It's 90 times thicker than the air you're breathing now. And it's almost pure choking carbon dioxide Jesus. gas. Right so 
that's more like a hell off earth. You don't really want to go there. No one's planning to go to Venus. Although you could actually live in cloud tops in sort of balloons suspended in the atmosphere. There is actually places where it's warm enough. (laughs) You don't want to go to Mercury. That's too close to the sun. Uh, Very hot. Although again, there's places on the edge of Mercury where you could find a cool region. Uh, But if you go to the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, turns out they're made of a lot of water, probably because water can exist far out in the solar system because it freezes as a solid, whereas closer in near the sun, it gets melted and vaporized by the heat of the sun. So not much water around here, except what the Earth collected from comets and a bit on Mars frozen below the surface. But the big moons of Jupiter and Saturn are sludge, mostly water ice with a bit of rock mixed in. And the gravity in particular of the moons of Jupiter, the four big moons that you can see in a pair of binoculars tonight, um, the moons pull on each other and the Jupiter pulls on them as well. And of course, we have tides here on the Earth because our moon's pulling on us and it moves the water around. And that has actually a, 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 an effect of heating, moving the water around, actually heats the oceans up a tiny amount. But on these extreme planets, it heats them a lot. Io has volcanoes going on its surface all the time because of this effect. And in fact, it turns itself inside out every one million years. It's spewing that much stuff out into, up into the air, or into, into the sky. Europa, the second big moon of Jupiter, the, the, the heating effect's not as extreme, but it is enough to melt the moon. And it seems the rock is sunk to the centre, the water's floating on top, and there's a, a, a solid ice crust on top of that. Now, Europa is about the size of our moon, roughly a quarter the size of the Earth. But its oceans are 100 kilometres deep. Our oceans are only a few kilometres deep. The deepest part's about 10 kilometres, but the very little of the ocean that's that deep. So the oceans of Europa are very deep, but not as big as the Earth. But if you add up all the water, there's twice as much water in Europa's oceans as there is in the Earth's. It's warm, it's got organic material in it, and a warm, organic-rich ocean is where we think life started on the Earth, and it's been there on Europa probably for the same length of time as on the Earth. So there should be life on Europa, or at least some very interesting chemistry going on beneath the ice crust. Now, no one's expecting we're going to drill down below the ice crust and find dolphin and whale cities. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not actually technically impossible. (laughs) But even if we just found simple cells, and we figured out that there was something that special that happened on the Earth, that simple cells somehow start to come together to make 36 trillion cell organisms like people. Uh, we'd, We'd understand the process that leads to intelligent life in the universe. I think most scientists are happy that the chemistry will produce life everywhere in the universe. The materials and the conditions seem to be on the Earth, on Mars, on the big moons of Jupiter. Even Saturn, we've found liquid oceans beneath the surface of the moon. Both its big moon, Titan, we think has got some liquid water below the surface. And the moon Enceladus, you can see the, the geysers gushing out in, in photographs. And like, just going out there, like, with all your extensive knowledge and research and books read and do you think there's there has to be life out there almost certainly yes because of how we think it got here on the earth you know i mean if you accept evolution most scientists do then you know we know we evolved from mammals we know those mammals uh going back to your story of the dinosaurs and the asteroids or comets hitting us probably an asteroid that hit us 65 million years ago uh it was a terrible explosion in in the yucatan peninsula in, in the caribbean uh, that would have killed everything in the region and left a crater 200 kilometres across. So we're talking about nearly the size of Ireland. Uh, but it was all the rocks that that threw out into space. 
A lot of them flew off forever into space. Uh, but some of them fell back and they all came back as giant fireballs. And there were so many fireballs in the sky that the light from these fireballs was nearly a hundred times as intense as the light from the sun. So everything on the ground caught fire. There's even a soot layer in the ancient geological record from all the trees, forests, grasslands burning on that day when the impact happened and all the bits fell back. And if you're on the far side of the earth, tough luck. Some of the rocks went so far up into space and the earth's gravity pulled them back down, they landed on the far side of the earth. So the entire planet was incinerated and anything bigger than a dog died. So all the big dinosaurs went uh, anything large died, probably the reason is anything smaller probably lived underground to escape the dinosaurs for one and because that's a good place to live. So they could burrow underground and survive. Only a few days is all you need. You then have a nuclear winter scenario when all the crops die for a few months. You've got to survive that. But there are a lot of carcasses around <laughs> if you're carnivorous. So you can live off those for a while. And then <coughs> we think humans evolved from a tiny mouse-like creature, nice and small to survive the, the impact. And that evolved into bigger animals. And you know, 10 million years ago, you get lions being formed and eventually whales go back into the sea. Uh, we got crocodiles still around because they were under the water and they could probably survive. Yeah, Sharks are very yeah. ancient uh, beasties as well. Uh, and it all begins to fit together very nicely. So we think this is the story of life on the earth. It's an amazing story. The, the big problem is the early cells. You know, inside every cell, there's 36 trillion cells in your body. And inside everyone, there's a piece of DNA. And it's got three billion uh, simple instructions in it. Um, and they, they contain a few dozen atoms. So, you know, there's still a hundred, hundreds of billions of atoms inside every piece of DNA, buried deep inside each of your cells. So cells are tiny, but they're very complicated. And the question is, can you produce chemistry that complicated if you wait long enough and slosh the oceans around? Some people think you can, and almost that it's inevitable. And then once you get those cells that self-replicate, um, how do you get them to cooperate and cr create larger organisms? Uh, and that, that might be something that's very unique, and it only ever happened once in the universe, and that was here on the Earth. So we might be alone. No one knows for sure. But there's lots of people doing research on this, and it's a fascinating area. Where, where, where does... Where do, I wish... This is one of them, them, just, them chapters of the podcast where I wish we, we were on YouTube as well, because the two of us are sitting here with, with expressions on our faces that is like, hang on, hang on, hang on. What? what? <laughs> that, which leads to my next question. Where right. does... Where does, it might be a silly question, but where does astronomy, does astronomy and religion fit together? It's a tough if, question. If yeah. people kind of think that God created. That was a sidewinder question, man. I was not expecting that. Is it a good one? Well, it's an interesting one. Yeah, people will think, especially yeah. religious people. Well, especially if religious people are like, well, God created the earth. Where oh, you've, creationists. You've basically oh. just proved very intelligently that like. Well, the whole, the whole debate about science and religion is, I like to think, interesting. There are some militant atheists who would say it's dangerous. And there's some religious people who are scientists. And I remember Sir Patrick Moore, who was a great friend of the society, gave lots of talks in the 90s, passed away, unfortunately, a few, few years ago. Uh, we had him in Ireland, and he was asked this question by a priest on a radio station, you know, about God. And he, his answer was that... There's three things he never discusses in, pu in public. Uh, one is politics. Uh, the other is cricket. 
uh, and the last one is religion. <laughs> I can understand the cricket <laughs> one. Yeah, he's a big cricketer and you just get into arguments about things like that. So he avoided answering the question. So I, I won't do that myself, but I won't be able to give you a definitive answer other than to say that the difference between science and religion is this is the interesting bit for me. If you're a scientist, anything I've told you tonight, you don't have to believe any of it. We have to be able to produce evidence that backs up that you know there are a number of craters I said there are on the moon that the plants there's a computer simulation and if somebody else wants to go off and do that computer simulation using the laws of gravity which you can test in the laboratory quite easily then they'll get the same answer so everything is provable in science and in fact it has to be and that's science for you so it's not a bad thing it's not necessarily a good thing it just is what it is it's it's common sense applied and now admittedly to quite extreme levels you've got so many layers of knowledge built up one on top of the other but in religion you have faith. That means you believe a set of tenets of your religion and you don't question them. So you can't prove that God does or doesn't exist because it's beyond logic. Uh, and I remember there was a big debate by an eminent astronomer uh, who was one of the head astronomers in the entire country and he's a seven-day Adventist. And he believes that the Old Testament is literally true, that God created the world in six days like it says in the Bible. And somebody said, well, you've just given us a talk about astronomy. You said there's light coming from the Andromeda galaxy that's two, three million light years away. So that took three million years to get here. So you didn't do it 6,000 years ago. And well, the answer, if you have an almighty God, is well, you just put the photons in situ. So it looks like the universe is 14 billion years old and that the light left Andromeda. And he set it all up. Convenient. So it looks like a big bang, almost like a playground for intellectuals to go out and figure out <laughs> the story he wants us to, to see as to how the universe works. And this argument went on because there were people with logic arguing with people who had faith. And one person just stood up and said to me what explains it all that we'll, you'll never agree uh, is that if you assume an almighty God, you're not bound by the laws of logic, mathematics or anything else. You can do anything you want. You can decide that on Tuesday afternoons between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, 1 plus 1 does not equal 2, it equals 7 and a bit. If you're a God, an almighty God, you're not bound by logic. You can do almost anything. You put those photons in place. You can create the universe so it looks like this. You can change the laws of physics tomorrow if you you feel like it. Uh, So if you assume an almighty God, you're never going to disprove that he, he exists. The thing is, if you look at the universe the way it works... One thing you can say, whether you're religious or not, is it doesn't need a God to make it work. You know, there are some people who are very spiritual and they think it does. But in fact, when you look into a lot of things, people's intuition and things like that, it's just random chance and we're programmed for that. The biggest uh, in our area explanation of that is astrology. I mean, a lot of astronomers immediately say astrology doesn't work and they hate might be a bad word to use. Hate astrology, dislike it anyway, Um, because they don't know of any reason why it should work. Uh, but I looked into the research behind it, and a lot of people did studies to see uh, does astrology work. And they came up with some very interesting facts. In fact, you learn a lot about psychology, but not much about astronomy. Uh, there's two experiments done that I particularly like. One was that they, uh, a lot of them are done in France because they used to record the exact time of birth on people's birth certificate. They didn't do that in England, apparently, and the studies were done in France because a proper horoscope, a professional one, tells you what you're like based on where everything is in the sky the moment you're born. That's what a professional astrologer will do when they cast a horoscope for you. Yeah. So stuff you read in the newspapers, how can one twelfth of the world's population be having the same day or the same situations in their life? 
even the professional astrologers say that's just you know it's a bit of fun to get you thinking about astrology go to a professional astrologer to get a real horoscope they'll say so they cast horoscopes in fact the people doing the horoscopes i think to be fair to them they're getting a very strong feedback from their clients this thing is amazing so they cast a horoscope in france for the worst mass murder they'd had in a while uh and then they cast horoscopes for a large sample of ordinary people. And in a double-blind study where nobody knew which horoscope you were getting, they gave half the people the mass murderer's horoscope, that that's your horoscope. And the person given them didn't know which one they'd given them. That was recorded somewhere uh, so they could check later. And they asked them to rate the horoscope. And the people who got the correctly cast horoscope for themselves, it turned out, 90-something, 95, 96% of them said it was uncannily accurate. Well, there you are. That proves astrology works, doesn't it? No, because 90-something percent of the people who got the mass murderer's horoscope also said it was uncannily accurate. And so they were scratched their heads and thought, how can this be? And when they looked into it, they found that there's something in the human psyche that if you say 10 facts about you, like you're good with money, or you're unlucky in love, whatever it might be, um, if, you, if nine of them are wrong, but one is right, yeah. People obsess about the one that's right and forget the nine that are wrong. That's human psychology. That's the ology of astrology. It's a very powerful force, uh, but unfortunately, it's not the influence of the universe on people's affairs. So for me, that explains astrology quite nicely. It's yeah. why it appears to work. If you, the other thing is, if you're an astrologer and you didn't do the course very well and you actually cast the wrong horoscope, 96% of your customers <laughs> are going to be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a great profession to be in from that yeah, point of view. You're in the wrong gig, mate. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned um, other like galaxies and other solar systems there. Sorry, I should just say one last thing about that astrology thing. That reminds me. Of course, there is another possible explanation. It could be that deep down, 96% of all French people are mass murderers at heart. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I forgot that idea. But assuming that isn't the case, there's no evidence for astrology and there have been lots of other studies done, but sorry, you're asking a different question. Our French audience will uh, will get on to us about that. Yeah, you you mentioned Andromeda there a second ago, I think it was. Um, Obviously, then, because things are so vast, and the further you look out, there's more, and you can look out beyond, obviously, with, like, huge, ginormous telescopes, like, where does our galaxy, or universe, whatever, end, and the next one begin? Or what happens at that point? Like, what exactly is that? Well... The, the thing about looking deep into space is it turns out to be more like a time machine than thing you're actually looking at. Now, in this room, light's bouncing around it. It moves roughly one foot every billionth of a second. So we only see the far wall a few billionths of a second ago, which is we can't perceive a short time like that. And even on the landscape, it's millionths of a second to see yeah. mountains. So everything appears instantaneous thanks to the extremely high speed of light. When you look out into space... The distances are very big. You see the moon as it was one and a bit seconds ago. When you look at the sun, you're seeing as it was eight minutes ago. You look at Jupiter, uh, nearly an hour ago. No, we're seeing the sun eight minutes ago. Eight minutes ago. So if it blew up, which it's not going to do, but if there was an explosion on the sun that's going to send radiation towards the Earth to give us the northern lights, uh, we it would explode in the sun. We'd have to wait eight and a half minutes before we'd actually see this explosion. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. <laughs> you're... you're <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, we're too excited children here. It's yeah. not like this, like, wait, what? Now, when you've got Jupiter and Saturn, you're into the order of hours. Mars, and here's going to be a big problem for people living on Mars. Mars can, well, when it's on the far side of the sun, it can be 20 minutes away. In, went, in light. In, in light. And radio waves are a form of light and they, te- they travel the same speed, the speed of light. Ah, okay, so like send an audio message there. Yeah, so if what? you want to say hello to your friend on Mars, if it wasn't... Actually, we do have rovers on Mars right now. So if we want to say go left to one of the rovers on Mars, we've got to transmit go left to it. That's going to take... Um, it's probably it's a, it's on the far side of the sun at the moment. It's probably going to take 15, 20 minutes to get there. So then the craft, the rover will turn left and it might want to send back... I've turned left and here's a picture of what I can see. So you have to wait another 20 minutes for that to get back to you. So you say turn left and it's 40 minutes before you're looking at the picture of what, what, what it saw when it turned left. Or say you want to fo- take a photograph of the, to the left. So you tend to actually give it a whole bunch of instructions. And it's actually been programmed to look at the landscape and figure out a, a route through it. Uh, and it does that all itself. So it's a fairly intelligent robot these days. And that's Mars. So if you've got people living on Mars... You, you can't have a two-way conversation with them anymore like you can on your smartphone. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to send them a video message and they're going to have to send you one back. It's going to be more like emails uh, on, on video. And that's a, bit of, that's a bit of a problem if you want regular communication. It won't be a huge problem. Uh, and we don't really know of any way of getting over that scientifically, even you know, with the laws of physics in any way that we could build a device to do it. So we could be stuck with that. There's a thing called quantum entanglement might be able to do it, but no one's built any transmitters based on that yet. And there's reasons to think that it probably couldn't happen uh, because it might have a problem with time travel. And that could mess things up for the universe <laughs> if it is possible. I'm watching a time travel show at the moment, so I'm freaked out by yeah. the prospect of that ever being... Look, I watched Quantum Leap before, and now I'm watching it's 12 Monkeys, never a film. They yes, made it into a yeah. TV show. so many years ago. Mm. Couldn't be dealing with time travel, lads. Yeah, and this is great because science fiction people get you thinking about some of the science as well. Yeah. But the, the, uh, when you look out into deep space, yeah. uh, the planets are pretty close. When you look at the nearest stars, so if you look at the average star in the sky, uh, most of them are bigger and brighter than the sun. That's why we see them because they're the, the, the beacons out there but they're typically a few hundred or a few tens of light years away and light years the distance that light travels in one year so light travels at 299,792.458 kilometers per second write that down for your pub quiz and lads. it's 365 <laughs> and a quarter days in the year that's used for the light years so multiply the two together 86,400 seconds in a year you get a very big number in kilometers it's nearly 10 trillion <laughs> Right so it's 10 trillion so a trillion of course we now know what a trillion is in the old days we didn't but we do now because that's nearly as much as we owe <laughs> <laughs> in fact when you convert it into cent individual cents we actually owe several trillion there's a few countries in the world that, owe, that actually do owe trillions uh, so trillions become a very popular number so it's a million million so it's a very big number it's really hard to imagine it uh, but we can write it down and it's 10 trillion kilometers to nearest to, to for one light year. The nearest star to the sun is four and a bit of those away, so 43 trillion kilometers away. And the average one you see in the sky might be a few hundred light years away. So you're talking about a, uh, a thousand trillion. You've got to go to the next number after a trillion, which is about a quadrillion. 
So and we're going to be learning a quadrillion soon when we owe that much. We might as well get started now. There are days where the remote control is too far away from me. Never mind. <laughs> this well, is t- take that. So tr- trillions and quadrillions, <laughs> that gets too unwieldy. We lose, use light years. And light year is great because it also means if I see a star, and this is a nice star you can see in the night sky, it's a very big star, very bright, quite far away. It's about 2,000 light years away. Which and is? It's called Deneb. It's a thing called the Summer Triangle. No, no, what does... Uh, what's Oh, 2,000 light years. Light years, yeah. Well, that means that... How many minutes is that? Well, it's, well, it's 2,000 years. So that yeah. means if that star blew up, it would be 2,000 years before we saw it. And that's still in our galaxy, our huge star Jesus. city that we live in, the Milky Way, which is about a, roughly a trillion stars. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, they're all sw- swirling around the black hole. Every, we're going around about every 200 million years. And that's about 100,000 light years across. So this star is only 2,000 light years. It's actually in our neighborhood. It's in our backyard. Uh, and when you look at the Milky Way, you're seeing the trillions of stars. Yeah. As you know, It's like when you look at a cloud in the sky, you're seeing the individual water droplets, which you know are tiny and too hard to see individually, but trillions of them you can see as a cloud. Same with the Milky Way. The individual stars are very far away and very hard to see, but the hundreds of millions, billions of them, you can see as a big cloud, a hazy patch, which is the Milky Way. So you can see with the naked eye when you see the Milky Way tens of thousands of light years away. Uh, And the light takes tens of thousands of years to get to us. And the Andromeda Galaxy, you can faintly see it from the suburbs of Dublin and relatively easily from from the countryside. If you come to our star we always point out with a laser pointer and people can see it with the naked eye. It's this tiny, dim, hazy patch and that's nearly three million light years away, which means you're seeing it as it was three million years ago. So if there is any intelligent life on there, it's long since evolved into something else. I mean, what was around on the Earth? Wait, what do you mean something else? Well, three million years ago, there were, I don't think there were any primates. There might have just been a few primates on on the surface of the Earth. There certainly weren't any humans or any intelligent life. Um, well, I mean, like to put it, and in that's the, a nearby galaxy. Yeah, to put it into context, like even though on two thousand years ago, if something happened in on that star two thousand years ago, like let's say it happened in July, zero seventeen, like <laughs> yeah, it's gonna happen. I mean? This, it's, in, see this, this July, so like that was happening when like you know Jesus and Caesar and all the boys over in Rome. That, like that's yeah. the time frame you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like, yeah. That's and think of it like this as well. Unless we figure out a way to travel what? faster than the speed of light, like Star Trek has a warp drive, <laughs> and they can communicate on subspace, <laughs> whatever they are. The, unless we can figure out something like that, that means, for instance, suppose there's a, star, a planet going around that star 2,000 light years away, and it's got intelligent life on it, and we want to say hello to them. Well, we say hello, they get it, and they say, oh, some other people. Let's say hello back. It's 4,000 years before we found That's out about them. They're all dead. Assume yeah. they have typical that, lifespans to us, and indeed, look at how our civilization has progressed in four thousand years. But even that, like, that wasn't so you don't really communicate with intelligent life, not in any way we know. Not anyway. in an intelligent way, no. Like, they, didn't they send like almost like a time capsule into space in like they the sixties or seventies? And a nice Irish story behind that: the Dublin International Film Festival, running at the moment uh, on Sunday, the twenty sixth of February. The an Irish company tended for a contract to make a documentary that PBS, the American channel, wanted to have made for the 40th anniversary of Voyager, the spacecraft you're talking about. And the little plaque attached to the spacecraft, in case any aliens pick it up in, in hundreds of thousands of years' time. Uh, and they've gone out beyond the outer planets, so nearly 100, 100 times more than 100 times further from the sun than we are, which is way out beyond Pluto. It'll still take them about 100,000 years to pass 
near any of the nearby stars. So that's a long way in their future. But they're 40 years old this year and it's getting its first theatrical release uh, at 2pm on Sunday the 26th of February. So diff.ie or just search for the yeah. Film Festival will come up. Um, I think it's called The Farthest. It's going to be shown on PBS in America on their broadcast network and then it'll be released in theatres worldwide after that. I think RTE have already signed up to, to get a, a version of it. Uh, BBC, German Channel. So it's been a very successful documentary and the craft themselves were phenomenally successful. They're the only ones I've ever photographed the outer planets, Uranus and, and, and Neptune, and sent us back the first really good detailed views of Jupiter and Saturn. And this was a craft that was launched in 1977. And think of what kind of computers we had back then. Yeah. Hardly anything. I don't think there were any desktop computers at all. Yeah. It was all giant mainframes. So they bundled it all into this little craft and it's still transmitting today, or the two of them are. Can, that, is, is, that is bananas. It is crazy. It can, what are the chances? Time. What are the chances of a of an asteroid kind of destroying Earth? Um, I remember growing up and modest. Mo- <laughs> <laughs> I remember growing oh, up and being that's like that was a huge concern. Yeah, if we yeah. want to scare you, we can tell you uh, you're more likely to die in an asteroid impact than a car crash or a plane crash. The thing is, though, unfortunately, people die what? in those kind of crashes every year. What happens in an asteroid impact is maybe a few billion people die ah, once every million years. Okay. So when you average it out over a long period of time, then they are very dangerous. Yeah, you did have me frightened for a second. <laughs> I was like, hang on, hang on, I'll drive everywhere, man. Yeah. So if an object, a few kilometers, the object that wiped out the dinosaurs was probably about 10 kilometers across. So about the size of Dublin City. Yeah. Uh, I thought it would have been bigger. It, they don't need to be very big because... It's the speed that they have that gives them so much energy. So it's like a bullet. It's actually so a very the small piece shaken. of metal, but it can make a horrible mess, especially if it, the object's going 10 times faster than a bullet. Would the Earth have shook? Yes. There were, on the Richter scale, the biggest earthquakes we've ever had are about magnitude 9. Yeah. And the Richter scale, every time you go up one number, you have 30 times the energy. Yeah. So 10 we never had one of those, would be 30 times more powerful. Well, didn't know that. 11 would be 30 times 30, which is yeah. 900 times more powerful. Didn't know that. And 12 <laughs> was the Richter scale for the impact. 12? 12. So it's a 30 times 30 times 30, whatever that is, 10,000 or something, times more powerful than the most powerful earthquake we've ever measured. So they're dangerous. <laughs> but it's not that likely. Well, if an object is not that likely, an object one kilometer across hit us, it would basically destroy a continent and knock civilization back to the Stone Age, it's been said. One kilometer? One kilometer, one kilometer yeah. Now, there aren't many of those around, there and we've theories. actually mapped most of them. What the hell? Isn't there theory so that like, something like that did happen about like 10,000 years ago? Like, and that's where somebody's, like, the American plateau and all that, that, that that's... I don't think uh, though a few thousand years ago, no, but there, there's an idea there might have been some impacts. Smaller objects hit us all the time. You, you, you might remember February the 15th in 2013, I think it was. Russia. Russia. Yeah. Chelyabinsk, a city that nobody ever heard of in the West, but it's actually the size of Dublin. Uh, it wasn't hit, but a, an object that we think was about um, 15 metres across, so you're talking about a decent-sized house, yeah. big house, uh, uh, hit the earth. Uh, the heating effect when it came in the friction of the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere feels very wispy, but if you're travelling at 10 times the speed of a bullet... It's like if you yeah. jump into water at, from 
a high enough height, it's like hitting concrete. And so it is with the Earth's atmosphere. And the friction uh, vaporized the outer parts of the object, caused a big shockwave that ripped it apart. It exploded in a, in a flash. And it was that actual explosion, the shockwave from it, that caused most of the devastation because it happened was it 20, several kilometers anyway above the ground. And the blast wave went, went out over toward Chelyabinsk and didn't fortunately kill anybody uh, or even injure anybody with the shockwave. But what it did do is it, it, a lot of people had seen the flash in the sky. They see the big smoke trail. They're there having a look at it, probably filming it on their smartphones as it slowly dissipates. And a few minutes later, the shockwave hits and blasts all the windows. And most people were, were, were injured by flying glass. It fell out onto the ground and hurt people below. It, it exploded into buildings and hurt them that way. And over a thousand people were injured uh, by that blast. And I think it was 40 kilometers away from the town so probably if it happened over Drogheda what would it be like for the city centre of Dublin something yeah. something like that so that was a small object we didn't see it coming because a 15 metre object is too small and faint to see until it's relatively close one kilometre object we could see we, we could actually, we do though we've actually mapped them uh, yes we can do something and like uh, with the uh, film Armageddon yeah kind of Armageddon and Deep Impact you either get Bruce Willis <laughs> uh, and yeah. send them up to nuke the thing uh, it turns out that the best way to, 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 to solve the problem is to map them all with telescopes on the earth even the small ones and that's going on but it's not well funded at the moment you can redo with funding it better and uh, when you find one you'll probably be able to run its orbit into the future and oh, in 800 years time it's going to hit us Ah, so you don't even do anything about it because yeah. the technology in 700 <laughs> years yeah good luck <laughs> yeah in 700 years we'll start planning something and in 700 years with 100 years to go you put a little rocket motor on it or there's other tricks as well and you just nudge it ever so gently because over 100 years it's if it's near the earth it's going to be going around the sun roughly once a year like we are yeah. and so it's going to go 100 times around the sun it's it's 150 million kilometers to, this, to, this, to the sun. So you multiply that by 2 pi, you get the path the Earth takes, which is roughly 6. 6 times 150 is around 1,000. So it's 1,000 million, a billion kilometers every year the Earth travels and an asteroid will travel. So it's going to do 100 billion kilometers. And at the end of that 100 billion kilometers, it's got to hit the Earth, which is only 13,000 kilometers across. So it's a very difficult target to hit the Earth. So all you need to do is nudge the craft ever so slightly a hundred years before, maybe stick a rocket on it and move it by a, a few centimetres would probably do it because a oh, hundred billion kilometres later, it's just going to breeze past the Earth. And as long as it doesn't hit us, it, it's no you, trouble at all. You make it sound so simple and reassuring. As long as you've got 800 years to plan, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> now, if you find one, as they did, with about 12 hours, less than 24 hours notice. Now, this thing was only the size of a van, so no one was really worried. But the, the, the guys who monitor the asteroids saw a telescope, saw this object. It was relatively close to the Earth. It was going to hit us within 24 hours. They alerted each other. They said it was going to hit over the Sahara Desert, I think it was, where practically nobody lives. Uh, and they... They just had people on the ground watch it. And some airline pilots saw it. Some people at a train station saw the explosion. It was recorded by satellites, weather satellites filming the ground. And they went out and found some of the meteorites in the desert that actually landed. So wow. small object hitting us, no real problem. Uh, and we have actually seen them and had a warning of one doing it. As long as they're all small like that. That was even smaller than the one that hit Russia. Yeah. 
oh, it's going to be a nice piece of fireworks in the sky. So uh, it might be a good thing. We get a free fireworks display. But when they're bigger than a house, that's when they don't really like it at all. When they get to be about 100 metres across, all of a sudden they can destroy cities and maybe countries. So the good news is there's very few of those. Yeah. But one thing Chelyabinsk did tell us is the statistics on that object and all the measurements were done that doubled the risk from small objects. So in 1908, on June the 30th, there was a big object, probably bigger than the Chelyabinsk one, that hit Siberia. And it flattened 2,000 square kilometres of, of, of forest. The trees were laid flat like matchsticks. Nobody really lives there. Uh, I believe somebody was knocked over. Somebody might have broke their arm and somebody's shirt apparently caught fire from the flash. That was the extent of the injury. Because nobody it. did kill a lot, of, a lot of deer apparently though. Because there's more of them than there are people in Siberia apparently. So it is lethal to, yeah. uh, to life. But fortunate. The thing is, the earth's rotating. And that's on the same latitude, uh, the impact zone, as I think London and Paris. So had that happened a few hours later... Oh. Oh, then shit. it would have hit Paris or London and the death toll would have been huge. Yeah. Now that's an object maybe 50, 30 to 50 metres. They're arguing a bit about the size. And those objects, uh, another one hit South America in 1947, I think it was. So we now think that objects bigger than a house and that can cause damage, local damage anyway, probably hit us several times a century. But the good news is most of the Earth's uninhabited. First of all, 70% of it's covered in water. There's North Pole and the South Pole. There's huge deserts. There's rainforests. Yeah. So the very f- people are concentrating in small pockets. So the two a century could keep hitting us for millennia and never hit a city. Um, but of course, you could be unlucky in the next one. It yeah. might actually what hit a major hits, population center. If it hits the water, are we going to get like a tsunami? Or and if it hits the water, yeah, you would get, uh, depending on the size of the object, some kind of tidal wave Jesus. tsunami. So that would be a bit of a worry as well. They're probably not going to be that big, to be honest, unless it's a really huge object. Yeah, no, we're going to scare them on. The one, the one that <laughs> yeah. hit ourselves, uh, you know, <laughs> killed the dinosaurs. Did I think it did land in water? I think the tidal wave from it was one kilometer, or was it three kilometers high? That's so the big ones do really bad damage. How do we know how high it was back then? Well. This is the great thing about science and physics. I mean, we've talked about the popular stuff, and that's all Astronomy Ireland deals with. But behind all this, there are people who do the mathematics and the studies and they calculate the energy and the heights and everything else. And they simulate things on computers as well, as accurate as they possibly can. They do real experiments to see if the simulation's accurate. So a lot of work goes into this. And you let a scientist at it for a few years, and he'll, he'll, he'll calculate the height of the tidal wave for yeah. you. Leave <laughs> until it. That's um, mind-blowing. David, we're, we're out of time. Um, we didn't even cover the Big Bang. I know. I was going to say, like, yeah. there's actually. Can you briefly say it? <laughs> <laughs> how brief? <laughs> like, because that's probably not the not thing clear. I like. Though the laws of physics that are behind it, the same ones that explain how transistors work, and they power our entire microelectronics business, which is worth trillions of dollars a year. So that's a very good, well understood area of science because there's so much money being made in it, and you can apply those laws of physics to how you can create the entire universe out of nothing as many times as you want. Is this the Higgs-Boson thing? It, the, that, that's actually what, one of the things you create in the Big Bang. So it's even be below that. It's all to do with how space-time works and how a thing called quantum mechanics works uh, that allows you to create stuff out of nothing. I think... I've well, heard Stephen Hawking give a few talks on it, po- allegedly popular-level talks, and they went right over my head. 
But some of the particle physicists in the audience said they understood it. So I just need to go back to college for a few more years <laughs> to gen up on that area, and then I might be able to explain it to you. But I have a funny feeling that that requires a lot of hard work. Because yeah, the, there was one, that. I think he won a Nobel Prize. It might have been Dirac, scientist, who said, if you think you've understood quantum mechanics, then you haven't understood quantum <laughs> mechanics. And he was a leading authority in the field. So if he can't understand it, 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 it is crazy what can happen in quantum mechanics. Really crazy stuff can happen. And it doesn't really make a lot of common sense to people because we're used to a bigger world where things seem to have a cause and effect. But it turns out that every particle in your body exists at every point in the universe right now. How can that be? And some of the work on that was done by an Irish, well, actually a, uh, a scientist who was based in Ireland, Schrodinger, and he worked out the mathematics of how likely it is for one, any of the particles in your body to be on Jupiter or the far side of the universe. The answer is extremely likely they're over there. But when you put your hand onto a table, it stops and won't go through. If you keep doing it, you can calculate how often would I have to keep doing that until my hand actually would go through the table. And it will go through the table at some stage. The answer is going to be way, way longer than the age of the universe. So it never really happens. But on the tiny atomic scale, it happens all the time. And you can make transistors out of that. And they're electronic components that you can miniaturize and you can make money out of it. Vast, vast quantities of money. Why so get bang on the table now? <laughs> <laughs> you need to study quantum mechanics. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dave, I think what we may have to do is invite you back on another time, or maybe we'll go out to you and Blanche or, or something because mm. this is like, like my mind is blown. And everyone should join astronomy on and get yeah. involved. Yeah, yeah. get the we, magazine. We get speakers in to talk about this kind of thing. Uh, we've had, as I said, Brian Cox, the Higgs yeah. boson. The first public lecture given by the head of CERN after they announced they'd found it was in Dublin to Astronomy Ireland. There you go. Exclusives and everything. Here. Yeah, he's, he's a German, the, the director, uh, a, a, a German scientist. And he had great jokes in his lecture as well. Who would have thought that uh, Germans have a sense of humour? Uh, With all apologies to Germans listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the French and the Germans you've said. <laughs> um, and maybe some of the aliens listening as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, so it's astronomy.ie and on Twitter it's astronomy.irl. Yeah, and if you just go to astronomy.ie you'll see the Facebook link and the Twitter link. So it's probably the easiest yeah, way to get them. Exactly. And Search for Astronomy Ireland. It'll come up. Yeah. <laughs> we've been there for t we've been around for 25 years. We've oh, wow. 50,000 people involved in the organization just in Ireland uh, and thousands more joining every year. That's uh, it's incredible. C congratulations on that. Um, but yeah, I think you've, you've definitely opened our eyes or blown our minds, whatever way you want. That's what happened to me when I was a kid. And now look at me. Yeah, yeah. I'm still trying to figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, David, look, thanks so much for coming out to us. My it's been pleasure. An pleasure. Thank you. It was great. Thank you. Right then. <laughs> <laughs> that was class yeah well I know a little bit more about space man so yeah like astronomy is crap well I, I told people during the week that we were doing an astronomy piece and they were like what are you getting horoscopes on for I was like that's yeah. astrology you kabosh <laughs> people are saying the same to me yeah. I'm not talking they were like oh what's their sign of you yeah. what has that got to do with it well I'm not getting bleeding mystic meg on <laughs> um, there you go though so check out astronomy Ireland and all air crack and head out to one of their information sessions. They're very, very informative. Anyway, that's us for this week. We'll be back next week, as always, every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Podbean, on Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, anywhere and everywhere 
WTS Pod, and you'll find us Facebook.com forward slash WTS Pod Ireland. I'm at Dan Joe Murray. At Mary Gamania. At WTS Pod on the Twitter. And uh, don't forget, lads. And don't forget to spread the word about WTS 100. Yeah, exactly. Live. The, the live show. Bring a friend, bring a family, bring a tribe. The more the merrier. Every red cent that we earn is going to suicide or survive. Great, great cause. Support, crack on the night. support local causes, lads. Support the bullet and uh, look after your mental health. But, Graham, until next week. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Too sweet, man. Too sweet.